0: Coming up on Tech Nation, how your smartphone will be essential equipment to take public transportation and looking back at one-way streets in Pompeii and the bumpy history of the chariot. Economist editor Tom Standage talks about a brief history of motion from the wheel to the car to what comes next. Then Dr. Jim Brown, the CEO of Direct, brings us their first phase two clinical trial results and what comes next for their entry in regenerative medicine. Like others, they've started with alcohol-associated hepatitis, but that's only a start. All this, coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
0: In 2015, I was able to speak with Dr. David Linden, a professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, an author of Touch, the Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. I asked him, what happens when your skin is touched?
2: we think of touch as a single sense, but actually there are many, many different sensors in our skin acting in parallel. There are nerve endings that transduce heat and cold and itch and pain and pressure and vibration and all those different... We're just si-
0: sensors. Sensors everywhere.
2: Sensors everywhere. When you think of it, it's, it's a very large array of sensors. If we took your skin off, it would be the weight of a bowling ball and it would be the size of nine large pizza boxes. So it's the biggest sensory array we have in the body. And it has all these different sensors, but these sensors are combined in a stream of information that goes to the brain, and so we don't experience all these different touch modalities as as separate signals they're they're blended together in our consciousness. you say there's emotional touch and
0: sensory touch
2: yes, that's true uh, for every kind of touch, whether it is a caress or feeling in your pocket for a quarter, or, or pain, or a sexual touch, there are separate pathways and separate brain e- regions for the emotional aspect and what we call the discriminative aspect. So let me give you an example. If I were to uh, hit you on the thumb with a hammer, uh, the facts of that, which would get to your brain very quickly to an area called the somatosensory cortex, would all be about where on your body were you hit, what's the quality of the pain, stabbing, burning, etc., and how intense is it? And then there would be another aspect to it, which is this is highly emotionally negative. Uh, And we think of, of pain as being intrinsically emotionally negative, but this is just a trick our brain plays on us. So if you have damage to the emotional touch center of your brain, and I hit you on the thumb with a hammer, instead of going, yeah, oh, that hurts, that's terrible, the way a normal person would, you would say in a very flat voice, yes, that hurts a lot. It's, It's not like being a masochist, right? Masochists have a big emotional response to pain. It just happens to be positive. So
0: hit me again.
2: Exactly. Pain asymbolics, which are the people who have this damage, have no emotional response to pain. And we only have to look to our everyday language to see this reinforced. So uh, we might say, I was touched by that gesture. You hurt my feelings. Uh, and the idea of touched meaning emotionally affected or my feelings to mean my tender emotions, you might think, well, that's just not something deeply biological. That's just a trick of modern-day English. But it isn't. It's actually broadly cult- cross-cultural if you look in different languages. So let's get to itch. Itch and scratch. So. Itch, there's been a big debate about itch, right? Some people have said itch is a special, unique sensation that must have its very own kind of nerve ending in the skin because it's very unique. It always provokes scratching. Pain doesn't provoke scratching. Itch does. And other people said, no, Itch is just a touch blend. In other words, it's a little bit of pain and a little bit of light touch, and you combine those together and it feels like itch, but there's not a dedicated sensor for itch. And this argument raged and raged, and now we know that there is at least one molecularly distinct, uh, unique sensor for itch, that it's not merely a blend. And the exciting thing about that is that means that we will now be able to develop anti-itch medicines that are way better than what we have right now. As you know, if you go get poison oak or poison ivy and you try to get one of those creams to relieve the itch, even a prescription cream, it's not very effective.
0: This Technation interview discusses Johns Hopkins School of Medicine professor David Linden's 2015 book, Touch, The Science of Hand, Heart, and Heart. And mind, He's hard at work on a new book, due out in fall of 2020, Unique, The New Science of Human Individuality. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
1: 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.
0: From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, rethinking transportation today and tomorrow while looking back for centuries. Tom Standage, the Deputy Director of The Economist, joins me to talk about a brief history of motion from the wheel to the car to what comes next. Then another approach to regenerating and repairing the cells in your body. Dr. Jim Brown, the CEO of Direct, joins me to review their ongoing clinical trials for alcoholic hepatitis, now in phase two.
2: Technation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com.
0: And now, Tom Standage. Hey, Tom, welcome back to Tech Nation.
3: It's great to be here once again.
0: Now, from the start, it seems if a human could figure out a way to get somewhere faster with a little or a lot of technology, they were on it. So where do we start? I keep thinking about the chariot race in the movie Ben-Hur.
3: Yeah, chariots are the first really fast vehicles. If you go back to the earliest wheels, so you have to go back about 5,500 years... They're on these big wagons and they're kind of big and slow moving and they don't have steering. Uh, so they're kind of cool for moving things around. Maybe you roll one out of a village and put, you know, the harvest on it and roll it back again. And the Mesopotamians use them so the king could have a better view of a battle and in parades and things like that. And then you also get nomads who live in these wagons around the top of the Black Sea. But essentially, they're big and slow moving vehicles. And the Egyptians are aware of these vehicles, but they choose not to use them. And they're like, what wheels? Why would we need that? We've got the Nile to move these big blocks around that we're using to build the pyramids. And when we get the blocks off the rafts on the Nile, we roll them around on rollers. And in fact, there was no vehicle on Earth at the time that could have carried one of those big blocks that they used in the pyramids. So... The idea that kind of wheels were immediately embraced as the coolest thing on earth is, is not really true. And then what happens is the Hittites, and so they're this people in roughly what's modern day Turkey. Invent the war chariot, and the war chariot is just like awesomely fast. I mean, it's it, you know it can go amazingly, amazingly quickly, and these are very, very light vehicles, and they've got spoked wheels, and that means you can make the wheels really big because they're not solid. You don't need a, a a tree trunk that's you know particularly wide to do it. You can make it out of lots of small bits of wood, and the Egyptians are like, okay, we need to we need to do this now. So they they get into chariots as well, and in fact, in Tutankhamun's tomb, there is a a chariot there that weighs something ridiculous like, you know, 35 kilos. So really not very much. Um, And uh, it's a prestige object. He's the king. He's been buried with his chariots because chariots are awesome. And what you see in the reliefs, on the temples in Egypt and also the Assyrian reliefs of the time, and then the Greeks and Romans inherit this idea too, is, you know, you you show the king on a chariot being awesome and smiting the enemy in battle. And this idea that kind of you are what you drive and the coolest people have the coolest and the fastest vehicles, it really all goes back to that point. Now, the funny thing is that the Romans then actually go off chariots. So horses get bigger and bigger. They're bred to be bigger and stronger. And eventually they get to the point where you can have a fully armed warrior on the back of a horse, which you couldn't have had, earlier on and so then cavalry becomes much cooler and the romans are in fact even the greeks do this so uh, there's this big battle between alexander the great and and king darius of persia that alexander the great wins because he's using cavalry instead of chariots and that's kind of one of the points where people realize that chariots have become obsolete and the romans and the greeks don't really use them the romans only use them for ceremonial purposes when you win a triumph a, a great military triumph you're allowed to parade through the street in a in a chariot and they also use them for racing. Uh, but the Roman soldiers wouldn't actually, you know, they wouldn't go into battle using these things. And it's quite quaint. When Julius Caesar comes to Britain um, in the first century BC, he refers to the fact that the, the local warriors that he's fighting against are still using chariots. And he thinks this is kind of quite funny and old-fashioned. And in fact, they're using them in a slightly different way. They're using them as getaway vehicles. Um, so they go into battle and they jump off the chariot and then they fight. <laughs> and meanwhile, they've got a guy on the chariot driving it round and round and round. And then when you think you need to kind of get out of a tight Spot you wave to him and he comes over and you leap onto your chariot and whiz away again like you know it's your getaway your getaway chariot. So what's what's really striking I think and, and in the beginning of my book I I talk about the kind of rise and fall of the wheel and wheeled vehicles. Um, is you have this period where the Egyptians won't use them and then chariots are cool and everyone wants them and then no chariots aren't cool anymore. It's just about horses. Um, and you get this medieval period where basically chariots are for women and horses are for men and that's why you have the idea of the knight in chariot armor who's always on a horse and the princess who he has to rescue and then marry is always in a carriage being pulled by a horse and this is because there's this gendering of vehicles and then it all changes again in the 15th century so it's a very what's what i call a bumpy road uh, for the adoption of the wheeled vehicle but what's really striking is that so many of these modern attitudes about you are what you drive and you know the cooler you are the cooler your vehicle must be have these incredibly deep historical roots
0: now, progressing from the carts and the chariots, uh, as all things that work for humans grow, as we say in, in Silicon Valley scale, by the 1890s, there were 300,000 horses on the streets in London. In New York City, 150,000. That's that's
3: hard to imagine. Yeah, and it's not just the scale, uh, the number. The, the problem by the 1890s is that then the horse population is growing faster than the human population. So the number of horses you need per person in these big, fast-growing industrial cities is going up. And that's unsustainable because the horses are already taking up a lot of space. They're producing amazing amounts of manure, you know, hundreds of tons of it a day, which you have to then get rid of. And, you know, you need stables to put them in. They require a lot of food. So you're having to bring food in from outside the city and you can't use that land to grow food for people. And this is why. So, you know, my book is looking, it goes all the way back to the wheel, but it's looking specifically at what happened in the 20th century most closely. And the reason I think it's worth looking back at all this history is because we're sort of in an 1890s moment again. So the problem in the 1890s is they're using horses for um, urban transport, and they're realising that it's unsustainable. It's unsustainable because of the pollution. It's unsustainable because of the noise. The traffic is terrible. You know, you can't move on the on the streets of Manhattan. Uh, you can't move in the streets of London. There are accidents because the horses. You know, they sometimes rush off or they kick people. And um, you know, it clearly can't go on. And trains, you would have thought, would have helped because you know you could take a train instead of going in a horse-drawn carriage. But trains actually made it worse. And this is because when you've got these fast rail links, between between cities, you're bringing more people and goods into cities. And then you need more horses to move the people and goods around. And in fact, it was the railway companies that very often owned the most horses because they would be responsible for delivery and all that sort of thing. So there's this sense in the 1890s that the way we're doing urban transport doesn't work anymore. We're going to have to change. What are we going to do? And I think we're in a similar moment now where we've realized that in many parts of the world, we're too dependent on cars. They produce all this pollution, there's, there's all this traffic there's, you know, accidents, there's all the noise and all the problems associated with cars. Uh, they take up you know, massive amounts of space. They're the second most expensive thing that a lot of people own. And, uh, and so we're sort of thinking, well, OK, it's, we could probably do better than this. It's time to change. But what to? What should we do? So we're in a very similar situation. And that's why I think looking back at how those choices were made in the 1890s and what the consequences were and so on is a very helpful thing to do now as we imagine the future of transport.
0: Well, Exactly. We're in a transition state. So let's talk about the transition from the situation you describe into the the first horseless carriages, the first cars, because it's the transition state, which is so fraught. I mean, and while you were mentioning there was, uh, you know, several tons of uh, solid output (laughs) from horses every day collectively. Each horse produced over 20
3: pounds per day. If you had a horse, you had a lot of output. Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. So, wherever it happened to be. <laughs> it, and it's just piling up. And so initially, you know, this you could, you could gather this up. And in fact, cities could charge people for the right to gather the horse manure and sell it as fertilizer to farmers. But as the number of horses goes up, The amount of manure goes up. And then the other problem is that there's this innovation that people discover that guano brought in from off the coast of South America is a much better fertilizer. So the bottom drops out of the manure market. No one wants it anymore. And cities literally have to pay people to take it away. And they take it away and put it in dumps. And then the dumps are really smelly. And, you know, it's just a massive, massive problem. Um, So, yes, you've got this unsustainability. And so advocates of the horseless carriage say, well, this will solve all of your problems. Because if you have a horseless carriage, you've got no horse manure. And it's really interesting that the terminology here, horseless, it's defined by what it isn't. So it's a carriage without a horse. Of course, now we call them cars or automobiles, but that's, that's what it is. So it's going to solve the pollution problem. It's going to solve the traffic problem, second, because when you've got a horse and a carriage, that takes up twice as much space on a road as just the carriage. And so that means you're going to free up half the road space. So everything's going to be able to move much more easily. And also these cars can go a lot faster. So, you know, that's going to mean they take up less space as well. So it's going to be end of traffic. It's going to be great. And they're going to be it's going to get rid of all the problem with noise as well, because um, unlike the metal rims that you have on a, a horse drawn carriage, which sort of clatter over the um, over the cobblestones, these new vehicles have got rubber tires. So they're almost silent, As um, says Scientific American. So that's great too. And then they're also going to be no more accidents because you can scare a horse and it can kick you, but that can't happen with a car. So it really is going to fix everything. So, you know, what are we waiting for? And, and you know, we, we know what happens. Uh, there's a competition between different kinds of car. Do you want it to be steam powered? Do you want it to be electric? Do you want it to run on gas? But And ultimately the gasoline powered car wins. But the presumption that the car is going to just be this technological fix that just fixes everything. And that's all we have to do. And then everything can go on the way it wants before um of course that's not what happened uh, and cars had these consequences they led to you know shopping malls and suburbs and highways and a lot more deaths a lot more road deaths um and they were just as um, there was just as much traffic in fact there's more traffic and then people started demanding to be able to park them wherever they went and and so we, we see the whole of the sort of 20th century of the car unfolding as a consequence of this what looks like a quick fix um and you know i tell all of those stories of those unintended consequences in the book and today you know there is a sort of quick fix you know whether you think it's driverless cars or electric cars um you know driverless again you're defining them by what they're not but what they don't have um but i think that the moment it's the electric car people are saying well if we just if we just switch the motor out and just have an electric motor instead then you know everything can go on the way it is and actually that doesn't solve a lot of the problems we have with cars it doesn't solve traffic it doesn't solve road accidents um it helps with um With the pollution problem, um, because obviously, you know, the emissions from, from cars, cars don't produce, you know, conventional cars don't produce horse manure, but they do produce this other rather problematic emission, which is carbon dioxide and particulates as well. Electric cars would solve the um, carbon dioxide problem, but um, but you still need to have a you know fully renewable grid, and in fact, it would only deal with about ten percent of um, of global emissions coming from from small light vehicles on on roads. So it's a necessary but not sufficient uh, aspect to it. But I think we need to be thinking bigger, and instead of just saying how can we kind of have a quick fix that allows us to just go on doing all the same things we're doing with cars, we need to be looking at lots and lots of other alternative um, means of transport, whether it's ride hailing, whether it's bikes, whether it's e scooters, whether it's flying cars, and, and you know driverless cars um it, there are just lots and lots of options now that they did jet packs will we finally get jetpacks? yeah exactly <laughs> let's do it let's do it but but i think the crucial technology that that has really changed the game for transport doesn't even have wheels and that is the smartphone and that's because the smartphone can integrate all of those things with public transport as well with buses with streetcars with trains with whatever um and all of those means of transport become much more useful when you can combine them. And this is what I call the internet of motion. And this is where the smartphone just knits them all together. And you say, look, I want to go from A to B. And it says the quickest way to do it is as a bus at the end of the road in two minutes, get on that, then get on a train. And then when you get out the other end, um, there'll be a car waiting for you and it's a ride hail and it will all happen automatically. And, you know, and Uber's business model now is to be this sort of fabric of, trans- of, of transport and to bring all the pieces together. This is already happening in some cities um, in Berlin, Berlin, for example, in Helsinki, you can subscribe to what looks like a cell phone plan for transport, and you get a certain number of rides or miles, um, you know, per per month, and you can get the option to add on, you know, a, a car use of a car at the weekend or or whatever. There are all of these just different tiers of of usage, and you are basically paying for transport as a service, um, and that is the sort. Of, this is known as uh, mobility as a service in the trade, but you know, my name for it is the Internet of Motion because what's really happening here is the use of information technology to link up different transport technologies. And what this does is it provides a viable alternative to the car for not everybody, but for some people and for a growing number of people. And, uh, and what that means is, uh, you know, we, we can see the, the convenience of owning a car is going down. It's becoming more of a pain. And uh, the convenience of the alternatives is it's going up. It's becoming more viable. So we're seeing young people driving less or driving later. And we're seeing more people in cities saying, you know what I'm going to do without a car. And they can only do that because they've got a smartphone first.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Tom Standage, the deputy editor of The Economist. You may well know him from his earlier books, including The Turk. Remember that? (laughs) I think that was the first time you were on Tech Nation. Uh, The Neptune File, another one, The Victorian Internet, and A History of the World in Six Glasses. He's here today with a brief history of motion from the wheel to the car to what. Comes next. Well, no matter what is happening, I know we see it in San Francisco today, uh, uh, instead of the, the, the 1950s, post-World War II, young man becomes a real man because he's got a great car, you know, that kind of thing. All of these young people come to San Francisco, they don't have cars and they've got scooters and little, all kinds of things that are va- electric bikes, regular bikes, all on the street, all around them wherever they are. But what you also see in San Francisco is this major reworking of the streets. The um, things are painted. In fact, there's uh, a one lane taken out in many streets going uh, downtown and uptown, um, which are red, and they say buses and taxis. They might as well say buses, not Uber. <laughs>
3: you know, yeah, yeah, we got we got political stuff. Well, even even Market Street, right? Yes, even Market Street. No, that that's the most of, it's the most amazing thing. Even before the pandemic, Market Street was was closed to private cars, which is like you know if this can happen in California, then it really can really can happen in in other places as well. But yes, there has been this um, there has been this trend, and the the pandemic has really accelerated it. Um, of saying, look, you know, we've realized the lesson of the 20th century is however much space we give cars; it's never enough. If, there's, if there ends up being free space on the road, people will go, oh, I could drive in that. And then uh, you get more more cars and more traffic. And given that you can never give cars enough space, maybe we should not give them quite so much. And so reallocating space for other kinds of transport, buses, bicycles, you know, whatever, um, shared vehicles... It does make a lot of sense, and we are we are seeing uh, some really radical experiments happening with street layouts and um, and the use of street space and the rules and the priority of one kind of vehicle over another and pedestrianizing whole areas happening all around the world. And not all of it's going to stick after the pandemic, but but you know quite a lot of it is. And I think the main thing is the people have realised the value of experimentation here. So city authorities are like, oh, you know what, we can actually we can actually try things and see if they work. And if they don't, we can change them, which is an approach called tactical transit. And it's a sort of experimental approach. Uh, and normally it takes like years and years and years to build a bus lane or replan bus routes or build a, a light rail line, whatever. But, you know, if you can just try, let's just try putting bits of, of rubber on the road or or plastic, you know, guards, guardrails, or something and just try building a bus lane and or try building a, a bike lane and see what happens. So we're seeing a lot of that kind of experimentation. And I hope that spirit of experimentation, uh, willingness to try new things will, will be one of the kind of best benefits that we get out of the pandemic when it's finally over. I was uh, speaking with someone recently
0: who was telling me about John Deere, the tractor people, and, you know, which a lot of those are are driverless. You know, a lot of those are self-driving, but what in recent years, all the tractors that they have sold they have on an Internet. They have an Internet of tractors all over the world. They know where they're going and what they're using and how they're being used or not, what the state of them are in. It's like this whole idea that anything moving will now be connected to uh, a big Internet of it. When you buy a new car, are you? will the manufacturer always be looking at its status? Where is it? What is it doing? Where is it? I mean, we've got some interesting, interesting things
3: here. Yeah, we have. And there's pros and cons to it. So my, my car, I got a new car at the end of last year, and it's a it's a plug-in hybrid electric. And it's got an app, which is great, so I can see how charged it is. But it also means if I walk away from it, it'll say, you've left your vehicle unlocked, would you like to lock it? Um, and I've, I've, you know, I've, I realized that it's I I now want everything to have an app. You know, I I buy any kind of, you know, the washing machine has an app. And in fact, it talks to the TV and it tells the TV when the washing machine's finished. But then, you know, classic lockdown purchase. We bought a hot tub and put it in the backyard. And I'm really annoyed because it doesn't have an app. Right. And I want to be able to adjust the temperature and see what temperature (laughs) is. It's It's like, where's my app? I need an app. Um, So, no, this is this is all great. And, uh, and, And my car does have, you know, an Internet connection and it can do you know, live traffic-based um, navigation, that kind of stuff. But one of the lessons that I think we need to learn, um, and I touch on this at the end of the book, um, is the exhaust. So what caught people out with the car, one of the many things that caught people out was they thought, well, it's not going to be horse manure, so that's, that pollution, that exhaust problem has, has been fixed. Um, and of course, the 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 Pollution, the exhaust that comes out of an internal combustion engine is much harder to see than horse manure, but it is still there. You've got particulates, which are not good for you. And you've also got uh, carbon dioxide, which is not good for the planet. And, And so we ended up, you know, thinking we'd solve the pollution problem, but actually we hadn't. Now, even if we solve that problem by switching to electric vehicles and switching to scooters and, you know, this Internet of Motion, I think we still need to watch out for the exhaust. And the exhaust in this case is the for- in the form of data um, and the fact that these vehicles and these, um, these services know where you are. Now, I don't know if you remember it, but a few years ago, Uber did this infamous blog post called Rides of Glory. And what they did was they analysed the um, traffic patterns of Uber users in different cities across America. And they, they looked in particular for how many one-night stands were happening in different cities and a one night stand was defined as you take an uber late at night on the weekend to a place you 've never been before, and then you take another uber home again uh, the next morning and you never go there again and so that 's a one night stand and that's so they, they basically searched their database and then they came up with this ranking of like how many one night stands there were in different cities across America and they thought this this was of course under the um the previous CEO It was the height of kind of uber being a total tech bro culture and you know uh, and so it was very very on trend for them, and they didn't think this was any. There was any problem with this at all. And of course, everybody went nuts when they put this blog post up. And the, you know, the, the 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 civil liberties people and the you know uh, uh, all of the kind of you know, the EFF, all of those people went like, "What the hell are you doing? You're spying on us. Uh, you can't do this." And so, so Uber took the blog post down, but of course, it's still there on the internet archive. You can you can go and find it on the Wayback Machine. Um, but but you know that that is a. Um, imagine now that the government knows where you're going and what transport services you're using all the time. And imagine that, you know, an an authoritarian government comes into power and says, well, um, there was a protest last year. Um, and a bunch of people went to it to protest against our policies, so we want to identify them. And so we're going to look at all the transport records and we're going to find out who rented an e-scooter to go to that protest and how long they stayed there, and then we're going to arrest them all. Um, and so there is this very active debate happening now about the extent to which... Um, Private companies that are being knitted together into this internet of, of motion need to share data with city authorities. Now there are some good reasons why you might want you know communication between those groups. If the city authorities are closing roads uh, they might need to tell people we're closing roads or if if there's going to be a big um, festival on this weekend, you might want to lay on some more scooters in that neighborhood and take some away from this neighborhood. you know there's reasons you would like that cooperation and also if you've got lots and lots of different companies providing these services, then you do need to have some coordination.
0: I've been speaking with Tom Standage, the deputy editor of The Economist and author of A Brief History of Motion, From the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, we'll hear from Dr. Jim Brown, the CEO of Direct, about a naturally occurring molecule which can be used to regenerate ourselves. First stop, the liver, now in phase two trials. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Economist Deputy Editor Tom Standage. His book is A Brief History of Motion From the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next.
3: So there are many people worried that the the system developed by the Los Angeles Department of Transport, which is now being used by dozens of other cities, um, is sort of problematic in this way that it's it's sharing too much data with the government, and there need to be there need to be better safeguards. And the sort of nightmare scenario here is is what's happening in China, where um, the social credit system this is where the government sort of rates you on how good a citizen you are. You know, have you visited your mother recently? Um, have you posted something on social media that uh, offends the government? Uh, and if you do something bad, you may find it harder to to access, you know, uh, the finance you need to buy a house, or you may be denied use of internal flights or internal trains, long distance trains. So you, you, you're basically, in some cases, punished by being denied access to transport um, if you're bad. And you can imagine the sort of, you know, uh, uh, the worst case version of this, you can have a uh, a system where, essentially you know, if you're deemed to have transgressed or not be a member of the right group then you can't go to that neighborhood you could have new kinds of segregation where you know this neighborhood is only accessible by autonomous cars and to be a member of that autonomous car fleet you need to pass these particular criteria i've spoken to some people who've said that we might even need the equivalent of net neutrality rules for roads <laughs> right? because uh, you might have you know you might have uh, roads where they say we're only going to let in these vehicles you know it, it, you can see this sort of thing so i think i think they're, um, you know there are we need to be open to aware of the the possible pitfalls and this is what i'm trying to do but really what i'm arguing with this internet of motion is that we need to get away from a monoculture and in many parts of the world in california would be a good example you do have very close to a monoculture of just dependency on the car in the same way that we had dependency on the horse before and what we really need is a more diverse range of transport options knitted together using the phone and you can have different options in different places so you know motorbike um ubers are very popular in nigeria for example so you know maybe you have that and then when new things come along like flying cars or jetpacks or autonomous cars, you could integrate them into the transport fabric more more easily.
0: I think people are beginning to understand that there are more options than the old options. Look, you know, the biggest uh roadway, the biggest boulevard that carries people is up and down Geary Boulevard. It goes from downtown, out to the ocean, carries more buses up and down. And many of them, when you look, there aren't anybody there's not anybody on them. And then at other times they're they're jammed to the gills. You know, that's where the smartphone comes in
3: there's lots of interesting experiments being done um so for example some cities have experimented with giving people in transit deserts um access to ride hailing so that they can be taken to a transit stop um and you know there are experiments there are all sorts of experiments being done with sort of you know pricing for new for new uh transport services to try and encourage people to use them in different ways so yes i think there's a lot of scope for innovation there's all sorts of interesting stuff being done around the world uh you know particularly in in uh uh, places like Helsinki and Oslo and Berlin, um, and so I think you know cities are all looking at each other and saying, "What can we? What can we use? Uh, what can we steal? What can we try?" And uh, this is a time of great, great sort of innovation and experimentation in urban transport, and I think that's all very, very good news.
0: Now, aside from your uh, your your long career with the Economist, uh, you certainly have a long career writing books, looking back in history and telling the story of the evolution of technology. And uh, I, I just, you know, I'm, I just was really, really struck in this book because, you know, as we're talking about horses, for example, and, and as we're talking about how loud something is, there is no recording from the 1500s or the 1800s or the kinds of things that we have today. But there isn't any smell-o-vision now. It's like, how is it to go back and put all those things together?
3: Well, you have to look for the evidence. So we know that, um, you know, that carriages were very loud in Roman periods because we've got, you know, some of the Roman poets complaining about it. Um, We know that the Romans had one-way systems in in Pompeii. It's very similar to the Manhattan system, actually. You've got this sort of alternating uh, one-way street. So each street goes in the opposite direction to the previous one. We know this because you can look at the marks that the steel-rimmed wheels make on the curbs. And there's one archaeologist in particular who's reconstructed the traffic systems of Pompeii, and they they built a sort of bypass, and the, you know they had it's hilarious seeing what they did. Um, so yes, you can deduce all of these things. More recently, if you look, um, at the early 20th century, there's this lovely film. that's on YouTube of uh, a drive down Market Street in San Francisco in 1906, and it's just before the earthquake. It's like a few days before the earthquake but what's really striking about it is you've got this variety of different vehicles you've got horse-drawn vehicles you've got some automobiles you've got people running in and out um and you can sort of see and you can see that the the street is sort of quite a a carpet of of stuff (laughs) Um, uh, and what's really striking about it is the the way all of these different forms of traffic are are just sort of you know flowing through each other Um, and there was a complete transformation in the 1920s where it was decided that you know cars should rule the roads and everyone else should get out of the way and that everything else was slowing cars down um and you know, actually, the way that things work before, if you go to India, I mean, the streets in a in a typical sort of medium sized town in India, it's very much like what you see in San Francisco in 1906. It's lots of different kinds of traffic weaving it out of each other in what looks like a completely chaotic manner. But nothing is going that fast and everything is sort of um, and you've got cows and elephants thrown in there as well some of the time, too. But but it's a you know, it's a reminder that that's the way that streets used to be before it was decided Sort of by city planners, and also with a lot of encouragement from the from the car industry, that cars should rule the roads, and uh, they came up with things like criminalizing jaywalking and uh, and so on. And so, on. but my my point is that we do have evidence of, of how things really quite recently used to be quite different. You know, again, if you look at pictures of, uh, of streets before 1910, you do not see parked cars on them. After 1910, suddenly you see parked cars along the sides of streets because people had decided that cars were cheap enough with the Model T, you could, you could drive to work. Then you needed to have door locks on the car and an ignition key, which was a new thing, because previously you kept a car in your stable with your horse. And, um, but when, when cars become more popular and people are commuting, <laughs> then you start to park them. And then, of course, people start demanding the right to park on the street and then they're taking up a huge chunk of the road area with just parked cars all over the place Um, and so you can see that change in the photographs and you you can see the point at which the roads start to be to be paved. You can see the extent of the I mean, every time I look at a historical photo now from the from the 19th century, I'm looking at the horse manure. Like how bad was the horse manure? And sometimes it's really bad. <laughs> I've really enjoyed sort of picking through oh. all of the evidence, whether it's written evidence or photographic or or film to try and sort of figure out how things used to be different and and how things could be different. One of the analogies I like to use is that um, fish don't know what water is, right? They're surrounded by water and they just assume that's normal. They don't know any other reality. Um, and we're kind of the same now with cars. We live in a world that has been completely shaped and dominated by cars um, if we live in the in the Western world. And, uh, and we kind of can't see past that. And so what I'm trying to do is point out the water to the fish and say things didn't always, you know, they weren't always this way and they don't have to be like this way. And um, And, you know, maybe we should think about doing things a slightly different way, there's less dependent on the car.
0: Well, there's so much in this book, much more than we've talked about. And I want to thank you, Tom. Tom, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. We hope to see you again soon.
3: Thank you very much. It's always good to be here.
0: My guest today is Tom Standage. His book is A Brief History of Motion, From the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next. It's published by Bloomsbury. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. In a recent program, we interviewed Craig Parker, the CEO of Suricin, about the Wnt pathway, which is present throughout the body and can be utilized to trigger cell regeneration. You likely heard that the first condition Suricin will study in human clinical trials is alcohol-associated hepatitis, or for short, A.H. On today's program, we explore another approach to cell regeneration, this time being developed by the company Direct. By coincidence, their first target is also AH, currently in Phase two clinical trials. Their treatment, like all of these emergent regenerative medicines, also has the potential to treat other medical conditions. While the first clinical trial candidates for both are identical, these two approaches and these two biotech companies are really quite different. Dr. Jim Brown is the president and CEO of Direct. Well, Jim, welcome to Tech Nation.
4: Thank you so much, more. It's uh, wonderful to be able to be here.
0: Now, there have been a plethora of stories in the media about pandemic drinking. How serious is it?
4: It's a big problem. And unfortunately, during the pandemic, we've seen an increase in the United States of alcohol consumption uh, that's about 30%. And this has been associated with, as well, um, hospitalizations due to alcohol have increased by about 50%. And the most common reason for this is uh, a disease called alcohol-associated hepatitis.
0: Mostly when I think of hepatitis, I think of Hepatitis C or hepatitis b you've got a virus you've got this is entirely caused by drinking alcohol
4: it is it's an inflammatory process actually it's much more than that very involved process, but it's an acute assault on your liver that's brought on most typically by binge drinking and uh and the patients present with uh with fever they have yellowing of the whites of their eyes known as jaundice. They're tired, they'll often have nausea and vomiting, and they always have a history of recent heavy alcohol consumption or uh, binge drinking. Is there a particular age group that's that's targeted here? You know, it's it's interesting. There are about 130,000 hospitalizations per year for uh, for alcohol-associated hepatitis, which we abbreviate as AH in the United States. And about half those people are between the ages of 40 to 60. Many of them will have cirrhosis. But it's really interesting, and this population is on the rise, there are more than 20% are younger people. There are people in their 20s and 30s, they don't have cirrhosis. But there is just more of a culture out there in, uh, in the millennial generation of going out and drinking on Wednesdays and Thursday nights, and it, it can add up to some people in some circumstances. <laughs>
0: Is there a standard of care for this? Is there a way to deal with this once they're in the hospital?
4: Unfortunately, there really isn't, and it's a deadly disease. The mortality of patients with AH is 26% at one month, and it's about 30% at three months. And there is no approved therapy today. They will use abstinence, of course. Standard of care will be supportive care. Sometimes they'll use steroids, but they've been shown not to improve survival, And in fact, unfortunately, the treatment for AH has not improved uh, since the 1970s. In, In the last 50 years, there's been no change in the survival of these patients.
0: Now, from Durek's perspective, what actually goes wrong in the body?
4: You know, we've all heard about DNA. You know, it's the molecule in the nucleus of all the cells in your body. It's effectively the blueprint of your body. You inherit the DNA from your mother and your father. You have the same blueprint in every cell in your body, but think about all the different cell types tissues that you have. You've know, you got hair, skin, muscle, bone, and that's because the epigenome allows for this DNA blueprint to be read. But if you look in the nucleus of a cell, only about 5% of what's in there is the DNA. The other 95% is the epigenome, which is effectively the brains of the operation that allows those genes to be expressed. Back when I was in school, we were taught that the Uh, the structures inside the nucleus cells were called histones, and they were there for structural basis. And now we know they're actually way more than that. They are (laughs) driving the reading of the blueprint, as it were.
0: They're not just holding up the roof.
4: (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. Not at all. And in fact, with a disease like AH and with many other diseases, you get dysregulation of this epigenome. And so you have certain genes turned on and turned off, and, and then you can move the cell towards... Unfortunately, disease states can move the cells towards death, and uh, and uh, it, you know the outcomes that you get with a disease like AH.
0: So, when you say dysregulation, you mean normally the the ninety five percent, the the epigenome there is operating on the five percent DNA. Everything's working out great, but when there's a problem it starts going awry. It's either not working or it's doing things it shouldn't do. And that's called
4: dysregulation. That's absolutely right. And we, until now, have known very little about it. We do use um, medicine that changes the epigenome in the field of oncology to kill cancer cells. What you do there is you go in and you disrupt the epigenome and the cells will die. But with uh, what we're doing at Direct, we have an opportunity to actually repair the epigenome, to bring it back more towards normal, and that has allowed for a, a greater understanding of uh, of this component of biology and medicine. It's fascinating.
0: I'm assuming with alcoholic hepatitis that your liver isn't working anymore. So we're talking about this dysregulation inside liver cells. So uh, when this goes awry, we're talking about liver cells that aren't functioning anymore. And then I guess your liver isn't functioning anymore?
4: That's absolutely true. And it starts with the liver and then unfortunately goes to other organs. But just you know, to focus on the liver cells themselves right now, the literature has uh, told us that what happens in these AH patients is the epigenome becomes dysregulated. And uh, through a process called hypermethylation, it's very specific, we don't have to get into that. But the reality of it is these major pathways in these cells are shut down. And so a lot of genes are turned off that shouldn't be and genes are turned on that shouldn't be. And you end up going down the process of cell death and dysregulation, which not only damages the liver, but eventually extends to the kidneys and the lungs as well and get multi-organ damage.
0: Now, I know it Direct, you're working and have been working for some time with a molecule called DUR928. What is that? What does
4: it do? How does it relate to AH? Yes, DOR928, it's a naturally occurring regulatory molecule that's found in all of us, actually. In fact, we've looked at it in uh, in many different species of mammals, from uh, things as small as mice and hamsters all the way up to monkeys, dogs, pigs, and humans, and we all have the same concentration in our body. It's fascinating in that it is made in association with the mitochondria. It travels to the nucleus, and it helps maintain homeostasis, as it were, of the epigenome, and cellular function, not of the liver, not only of the liver, but of many, many other cells. So what we've been able to do with the UR928 is show in a number of cell culture models and a number of, uh, of other models that it's able to restore function of the cells. And we've also now been able to use it in AH patients and show that it improves the function of uh, these patients as well.
0: Now, you've gone through phase one, we know it's safe for humans, and you did a 2A, that initial study, and according to my notes, 19 patients, just to try to see what happened. What what was that study about? What did you do with those 19 patients?
4: Well, first off, as you know, we've been talking about, AH is a horrible disease. 26% of AH patients die within a month, and 30% die within three months. In our first study, as you talked about, we had 19 patients, and they all lived over that 28-day study. And I think what's equally as impressive as that is 14 of these 19 patients left the hospital within three days of their first dose and their only dose of 9 to 8. So that speaks to some of the epigenomic component of this. We're restoring the function of the epigenome of the nucleus of these cells, just a single intervention in 14 to 19 patients. And if you think about it, most of the time, those patients would be in the hospital for weeks And unfortunately, a third of them would never go home. And in this case, 14 to 19 walked home before day four. So it's almost
0: a simple concept that they have it naturally occurring, but at this
4: crisis, they need more of it. Exactly. It's very similar if if you think about corticosteroids, right? You've got corticosteroids in your body, but if you've got an extreme uh, condition like asthma or something like that, you can deliver corticosteroids by inhalation and change the inflammatory state of your lungs and then allow the patient to breathe again and, and to reduce the inflammation there. So you're taking a naturally occurring molecule, giving it back as medicine. And we're doing the same thing here.
0: Well, when you have that kind of response with 19 patients right away, you say, okay, we have to do another phase two study. <laughs> we need more people. <laughs> and uh, So what's your next your phase two B, I guess, would be the next one. What are you doing there?
4: Yeah, so right now what we're doing is we, we are running a, a phase 2B study. Uh, it's a trial in 300 patients um, with severe AH. We're testing two different doses of 928, and we're also testing against uh, the standard of care, which is you know supportive care of these patients, 100 patients per group. And the endpoint of this trial will be survival at 90 days. It's extremely important because if we're clinically successful, we could uh, get approval based on that single trial, because of the high mortality rate, this effectively puts this disease up there with some of the most horrific cancers that are out there.
0: So let me get this straight. If you have a successful phase
4: 2B with the 300 patients, you don't have to go to the big phase 3 well we wouldn't i mean i we may not have to I, if the data are good enough if they're compelling enough that we would submit at that point in time because we have 300 patients that's a huge number of patients in this in this rare disease state and because survival is the endpoint because there's nothing out there today it uh it would not be the right thing to do to keep it off the market you know any longer if it were able to save these patients lives if we got results similar in the 300 as we got in the first 19 now, no one signs up for this trial in advance. No one, no one says I'm going to go on <laughs> no. a
0: binge, but I want to get all the paperwork out of the way. Um, and yet, these are extremely sick patients. How do they? How do you find them? And how do they? How are they able to give their consent to this uh, entry? Uh,
4: that's a really good point. You know, we have explored the potential of DOR928 in a number of acute diseases, things like sepsis or acute kidney disease and we can talk more about these later but the reason we selected ah for our first indication is because unlike a a stroke for example where if uh, i had a stroke and i had a twin brother who had a stroke and there was a 12-hour delay between myself getting in there and my brother got in there 12 hours earlier he's going to have a better outcome just because of supportive care so you had a lot you have a lot of patient variability in in stroke trials and sepsis trials and kidney trials and you see these with with you know very difficult uh, paths to approval for drugs in these areas. With AH, the disease is a very insidious disease, and, and the people die over a month or two months or three months, but it's a very slow process. So that's the, uh, the circumstance that is different with AH. It's a slow, insidious process that if one can intervene, potentially one can make a difference and save someone's life.
0: So these subjects, these trial subjects, are alert. They're in pain and that type of thing. There's all kinds of things going on with them, but they are alert and they're able to sign up for, for such a trial.
4: Yes, most of the time they absolutely are. They, uh, they're febrile, they're nausea, vomiting, they've got the jaundice, all of these things, but most of the time they're alert. Unless they progress to the point where they would have encephalopathy, then they might be actually beyond the point where, where we would be able to put them in this trial. We are treating severe patients, but only up to a, a certain point and uh and we're we're going up to a point where they have about a uh 40 to 60% chance of uh of dying within 3 months that would be kind of the the most severe patients we would take in this study once we prove it if we prove it out in these patients then we certainly will will look to use it in uh, the more severely ill as well
0: now about a third of these patients these subjects trial subjects are going to be put on the current standard of care. And we know the outcome for that. Many times, if something works, appears to work, they convert those trial subjects into subjects that receive the benefit of the drug. Um, At what point do you you say, okay, if it works, if it's starting to work, do you start, okay, you actually didn't get the drug, but we're going to offer it to you now. At what point do you make
4: that call? That's that would only be at a point when we've dosed enough patients. We do have a, a, a drug safety monitoring committee, and that committee monitors the study and evaluates things just as you described. So they can start to, uh, and, and as we get past X number of patients, they they do these periodic reviews where they look and see how are the patients doing who are dosed with DOR928, how are the patients doing when they are dosed with the standard of care. And if it gets to the point where they feel that it doesn't make sense to continue, in, in other words, it, it, it can be for two different reasons. It can be for futility, and that is that the drug is not working, or it can be on the other side of it, and, and that's what we certainly hope for, where the trial drug is saving lives, the standard of care patients are dying. And at that point in time, they can end the trial early by virtue of saying, you know, we're putting too many people at risk where we shouldn't be. And if they have what they believe would be a statistically significant signal there, then that trial can be ended early.
0: Now, what other diseases or conditions are caused by these kind of problems with the epigenome that might be helped with DUR928?
4: Yes. The diseases we're looking at and where we have tested this in various models and shown that it helps is in, in diseases like acute kidney injury, or in diseases like sepsis, where you have endotoxin, you know, super high amounts of endotoxin, or things like overdose of of Tylenol or acute pancreatitis. These are all cases where 928 has been shown to work. In some of these cases, we don't know yet whether there's hypermethylation. So this is a case where the drug is maybe leading the, uh, the, the way forward in the, in the path for under, better understanding of the disease. It's, it's kind of a hand-in-glove thing. We, we understand in some cases there's hypermethylation. We can move in with DOR928 and help treat the epigenome. In other cases, we know DOR928 helps in this, at least in this animal model, should be able to help in humans. And then we'll go in there and then find out whether or not there is hypermethylation.
0: I think this is fascinating. Usually we think there's a condition. Let's give the person the drug. Let's see if it cures what it is you're saying. Sometimes just giving the drug gives us information about how the whole system works.
4: Absolutely. Yeah, this is a a very different uh, way of thinking about medicine. Uh, You know, I was raised and and, and went through school during a time when, when drugs were much simpler. You would simply have a drug like a, like a statin, for example, that that inhibits one of the enzymes in making cholesterol. So if you have high cholesterol, you give this drug; it reduces the production of, you know, of, of cholesterol at that one point. But you get buildup of, of you know, precursor molecules, and you get side effects and all the rest of these kind of things. With dr nine hundred and twenty-eight, we're changing the whole set point uh, of a cell, and uh, because of that, which is another fascinating thing about this, we've really not seen much at all in the way of side effects with this drug in the most seriously ill patients one can think of. And uh, and that's been fascinating. It's been a very safe drug to use.
0: Now, very interesting for me is that you're a doctor of veterinary medicine, not an MD, not a PhD in microbiology or all the normal folks that walk through my door here. Um, why is a background in veterinary medicine a good thing here?
4: I think it's, for me, it's worked out really well, obviously, but I've, 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 it's been a great career and I've really enjoyed it. I, I still have my license to practice veterinary medicine here in California, and I enjoy doing that, but the reality of it is it gives me, I think, really good insight because I, I can look at animal models of certain disease states and uh, and look and see how it might apply to human medicine. And, uh, and we're all, you know, we like to think of ourselves in such a different way as, as humans, but we're all animals right humans are are you know five to six foot primates typically walking around uh you know and with veterinary medicine to get the great opportunity to be able to understand the the physiology and and disease circumstances uh of primates but also of you know horses and ruminants and uh dolphins and all the different kind of species that are out there so it's a it's a it's a great multiple uh you know approach to uh to disease but, yeah
0: well, I really appreciate you coming in, Jim. I hope you'll come back and see us again.
4: Oh, well, thank you so much, Moira. I really appreciate an opportunity, and I look forward to it uh, time.
0: Dr. Jim Brown is the president and CEO of Direct. More information is available at direct.com. That's D-U-R-E-C-T, direct.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.